0: Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision-makers behind Australia's city-shaping infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, and I'll be joined later in the show by my co-host, Ilya Zak, from our series sponsor, PwC Australia. Prior to the onset of COVID-19, Ilya and I sat down with John Pekava, co-head of Macquarie Capital Australia and New Zealand. Despite being recorded before COVID-19 emerged as a defining issue of our time, the themes we discussed are arguably even more relevant in the shadow of the crisis. With areas like resilience, digitisation, renewables, decarbonisation and infrastructure funding all part of our discussion, we also somewhat prophetically spoke about what an infrastructure stimulus might look like if it was needed. It was a great chat, so here it is. John Picaver, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thanks for having me. So you're an investment banker would be how you'd self-describe? Or? Yeah,
1: with yes, that's right. So engineer by background uh-huh. uh, and then moved into infrastructure finance and now looking after Macquarie Capital across Australia and New Zealand, which is uh, the, the capital markets facing project finance, corporate advisory, principal investing part of Macquarie. So merchant bank uh, style, yeah. investment bank style. Um, yeah, we don't use that. Phrase in the sense that we're not a regulated bank. We've got a bank mm. at Macquarie that does home loans and those sorts of things. So mm. we're the we're the uh, the Macquarie Capital part of the business. Um, but yes, it's a bit of an unusual background for uh, for investment bankers, as it were, in terms of where I've come from.
2: Can we talk through that? the the engineering background so because we've read we we understand you've got a phd in is it civil engineering civil engineering yes guilty and i've seen a paper with some some oil drums on it some some kind of very exciting you've you've seen that yeah that was the
1: undergraduate one so yeah look i started uh started as a civil engineer um and enjoyed that and uh, that was the choice for me really enjoyed the numerical side of Uh, things at school and problem solving. And that seemed to come together for me in in civil engineering. You wanted to be an engineer as a kid? I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be a pilot as a kid, an airline pilot. My dad was a pilot. My uncle was a pilot. My other uncle was a pilot. My grandpa was a pilot. I am the black sheep of the family. (laughs) I don't have my pilot's wings. Uh, (laughs) And so actually one of the things that I I thought about when I was uh, choosing to go to university was becoming a pilot. And just at that time my dad threw himself into a rubbish tip of all Mm -hmm. things, broke his back and uh, was okay but couldn't fly. He was okay. fine walking around. He could swim. He could walk. The one thing he couldn't do was sit. Wow. And yeah. international airline pilots spent a lot yeah. of time <laughs> sitting. So he had a whole pile of time off and he said, look, if you want to be a pilot, that's okay, but why don't you go and study something
2: First, in case you do something like me. Plus, he, you've already got the standby flights from all the, the rest of the family anyway. That was good fun <laughs> as a kid. That's <laughs> for sure. That's for yeah. sure. But dad, I
1: mean, he flew for Qantas for 42 wow. years. He came straight out of school, went into flying, and that was all he knew. So he didn't have a, a backup, as it were. So his advice was go and do something that you might like to do in case you didn't want to do So, so even at university, so,
0: though, it was still... Be a pilot, but... Uh, I'd sort impact. of
1: thought about it. I'd, I'd, I'd thought about it. By the time I started engineering, I loved it, though. So mm. by the time I was into it in year one um, and uh, it became apparent what engineer, civil engineering really was and the doors that it opened, then that was, that was really it. So I, I, I continued on that track and did civil engineering here in Australia at Sydney University uh, and then worked as a design engineer for a number of years for Haida Consulting, which is now Arcadis. Mm. Uh, and got to work on large civil infrastructure projects. So the, the big projects around here at the time were Parramatta Chatswood Rail, yeah. as it was called before it was just Epping to Chatswood. Mm. Yeah. Um, M5 East uh, design as well was happening and construction at the time. So the big tunnelling type projects uh, and that really got me interested in the financial and commercial side of infrastructure, yeah. so we we're involved in PPP bids. You'd see the lawyers and the financiers and government in the bid room and uh, and so forth. And the collaborative nature of those huge infrastructure projects was what really got me heading down a track of of infrastructure finance as something mm. I wanted to do. Um, but then I took a sort of a side turn, as you say, yeah, yeah on um, on the PhD side of things, and ended up. Going and doing a postgrad degree, a doctorate in engineering, having decided I wanted to do infrastructure finance, an opportunity
2: came up to do the postgrad research, and that was after you'd already been working at Heider.
1: It was, yeah. So I was Heider for a number of years, and then this opportunity came up to go to the UK to do the research. Uh, I was at Oxford, so they call it a Dfill there; they shorten it in a in a mm-hmm. different way but uh, postgraduate research, doctorate in engineering in tunnelling and particularly looking at modelling of buildings when you're constructing tunnels underneath them. And I was using the Jubilee line in London when they built that in the late 90s. They instrumented a lot of the buildings that the yeah. tunnel went underneath so they could measure how the buildings reacted. And they thought they would probably be spending a whole pile too much money protecting those buildings, soft ground, old buildings heritage buildings and they did. So the research was about how do we predict the the damage better to buildings. So what did you find? Uh, We found, so I built a big computer model of building soil tunnel interaction, a big finite element model. So geotechnical engineering model in the ground, progressive excavation of tunnel. And then the new thing, because all PhDs have to have something new, was a way of modelling the building just as a series of beams on the ground, so I didn't have to model the whole building. And then you could model it, predict the damage, and the nice thing was with all this Jubilee Line data that we could compare these predictions from the model to the actual data. So had they used
2: your model on the Jubilee Line, what would have been the difference? They would have saved money. They would have saved money because they pumped all this grout in underneath the
1: buildings, above the tunnel, beneath the building to protect the buildings in the soft ground, and they, in hindsight, spent too much on the money. So they were were like
0: like seismic monitors and... They right. had
1: yeah, so displacement monitors on all the buildings yeah. and photographic images and so forth, so you could tell where all the buildings moved yeah, as yeah. the soil displaced as you excavated yeah, the okay. the tunnel. Best not try fantastic. to get into
2: the weeds. Of I'm, the I'm not stuff. <laughs>
1: Adrian. You and I will be found out pretty quickly. <laughs> I'm just, so you,
0: you're a real engineer. Then this is like often we in the investment banking, but other places there are lots of people who are engineers um, because they did it for the maths and then they.
1: Moved on on and and did did other things, so they they never practiced as an engineer. Yeah, but you, I did. Yeah, I was an engineer for six, seven years before moving then into at to Macquarie because I'd done that post-grad study in the UK and I joined Macquarie in London. So then I finally did head down the infrastructure finance track and and joined Macquarie in London. But, yeah, did work as an engineer for those years. Doing a PhD in engineering like that's kind of like working in an engineering consulting office. It's a big open plan office. You've got all the students. You're all working on your own project as opposed Mm. to collaborating. Uh, So it's a collegiate environment but you've got your own individual project. So it feels like you're in a consulting engineering office. Others Mm. who are doing testing, sand testing or soil testing and rock testing and other things, had the lab. I didn't get to crush rocks or anything, which <laughs> was a bit less fun, mm. uh, computer modeling.
2: After all of that time at Hyder and then the, the PhD and all the dreams of being an engineer, I know you, you already had a, you know, your interest in infrastructure finance, then you, you eventually you made the jump. To back back to Macquarie? What, what was the, What was happening there? Was that always the plan to get to Macquarie straight after the PhD? It, it was. Um, in fact, it probably
1: was the plan before the PhD. I oh, was okay. heading down that track of wanting to go into infrastructure finance mm-hmm. while I was working on those PPPs for Hyder. And the place to do infrastructure finance at the time here was Macquarie. That yep. was the, mm-hmm. the place to do it. Uh, so I wanted to do that. And really the PhD was a detour or treading mm-hmm. water really okay. in that career for, for three and a half years while I went and did that. And by that stage, Macquarie was pretty big in the UK. No one really still knew who Macquarie was. They couldn't pronounce the name, didn't really know what we did. Uh, but the office was big enough, a couple of hundred people there. And so I decided we'd stay in the UK. And my wife, Joanne, was in the UK at the time. I met her doing engineering at Sydney Uni, actually, and she when, moved When into, was that, by
2: the way, that you, that you finished Joined Macquarie PC in 2005. Okay. Uh,
1: so I was in the UK 2001 through 2005. Right. Uh, and that uh, – so pre-financial pre crisis and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So lot's happening.
0: post-M6 motorway? Because Macquarie had post. that in the
1: UK. Uh, it, was, it was around about the same time. Yeah. I was there at the time when Macquarie had just bought their first asset in the UK, which was a water company um, uh, in the south of England. Yeah. Uh, they'd just bought Arlander Express, the railway that went out to the airport. Right. Uh and that was in our Macquarie European Infrastructure Fund number one. So Macquarie Capital, which was called the Investment Banking Group mm. at the time, was the advisory group. We had the funds management group and they just bought their first asset. They're now up to Macquarie European Infrastructure Fund number six. Right. Uh, so the the growth in that you know, space, which we, you know, we'll talk about as we as we go. Uh, has happened in that in that space of time. So I was just sort of at the beginning of Macquarie getting into the infrastructure side so, of so things in the UK.
2: What were you doing there then at the start? Ooh. Utilities advisory, actually. So I joined
1: what was the utilities advisory team okay. in, in the investment banking group, which was advising on the acquisition of things like regulated water, gas, electricity, and the UK at that time was just going through a process of privatizing all of their um utility right. assets it was the first cycle of privatize and then regulate under the new regimes mm-hmm. uh, so it was early days for that there was a lot of activity because there was a lot of small water only companies mm-hmm. and mergers happening and private capital for the first time coming into the uk utility sector yeah. um, and so a lot of first transactions were
2: happening at the time and it was uh, it was Australians bought up half the water sector at that during that period, didn't they? Australian funds. Not sure it quite got to half, but there was a lot of talk about a lot of talk about that.
1: The, the the I guess the one that got the most press was when a consortium that Macquarie led bought Thames Water. Yeah. So that's the water utility around London, high profile, uh, large transaction, uh, and that consortium owned Thames for a number of years. Um, one of the interesting things I think about that is that as that private capital came in and the regulatory settings. set up for that there was a real incentive to invest further capital in those businesses and make them more efficient Mm. so the whole regulatory regime was around making those companies more efficient they'd measure efficiency benchmarks measure the companies against each other and that's actually what happened it was a good example of a regulatory regime encouraging that capital to come in the performance of the companies improved in water it was things like leakage and service Mm. repair times and all of those metrics got better uh encouraged by that regulatory regime. They needed the money to come in. They'd all been starved of capital.
0: Just as an aside, I, I find it interesting that um so Macquarie no is no longer involved in Thames. Not anymore, Rogers, no. No. Um no longer involved in
1: Sydney Airport, which no, was previously owned. No. There, there seems to Not be everyone this, knows that but by they, the way. A lot of taxi drivers still think we uh we own it, it, which we don't. I don't get that
0: impression with any other owners of Infrastructure asset. So no, it's
1: interesting, to- isn't it? I, I, I think there's a there's a common knowledge about Macquarie's interest and expertise in, in infrastructure and ownership. We do remain the world's largest owner of infrastructure assets. Mm. Um, so that that flavour of acting as an owner, and particularly in our funds. Business still persists, but yeah. things like Sydney Airport we owned for a while. It's now listed on the on the ASX. Anyone can go and buy a share in in SYD. Uh, yeah. So there's there's this recycling, I think, also of capital that comes as part of what we do. And in the Macquarie world, you've got two parts to it. Largely, you've got the funds management business that owns assets and looks after them as custodian for a long period of time. They manage money that is people's superannuation pension money um, on behalf of those uh, savers and that goes Mm. into those assets or on our side we're advisors to transactions or developers of assets so it's much more shorter term Mm. investment horizon on, on our side of things. We get to operate in both those spaces which is quite nice actually.
0: One of the things that's quite different to when you would have first been at Macquarie is just the scale of the superannuation savings that australia has mm. and um i think a dynamic even over the last couple of years is those organizations aussie super first state super others scaling up their infrastructure teams and doing much more direct investments buying whole assets or very big chunks of assets and one presumes that extends over time to maybe even you know, delisting companies that mm-hmm. kind yeah, of yeah we've seen
1: that we've in fact we've seen that already um,
0: so. d- does that change the, the the way you go about your job
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't change it. Um, It means we're busier because there's actually a lot more investors who like the asset class. The asset class has matured, those real assets, infrastructure and and property. So there's more people who want exposure to that. Mm -hmm. Um, That happened initially by those people saying, we don't have the expertise, we like the nature of these, so we'll find a fund manager who can do that for us. Mm -hmm. That's where Macquarie Fund's set up. That's where the likes of a lot of the other infrastructure fund managers have grown up. And now, as you say, those investors are... Getting their own teams to be able to do that mm. directly. Um, there's two things driving that. One is they want their own um, uh, sort of look after their own destiny a bit more and yeah. do it themselves. That they, if they've got the skill set, they don't need to pay a manager to do that. Yeah. Excuse me. So that 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 is part of the the um, the development of that. What it means for us is there's a much wider range of people who are looking to invest into these assets. Mm. And so mm. what's happened there is you've seen the definition of infrastructure. And the types of assets that are considered infrastructure or infrastructure-like or um, quasi-infrastructure, whichever definition you might use, expand. So it's gone now beyond regulated utilities. It's gone into things like data centres where there's long-term contracts or contracted energy assets. Um, The social infrastructure side, I think. Yeah. So Mm. hospitals, schools, uh, waste-to-energy, land titles offices, Mm. uh, other heavy – uh, heavy physical infrastructure assets is where it started and now where you think of assets where there is a certainty of revenue or certainty of cash flow, so they might not have those that asset backing. Things like land titles offices are a good so a you good need example. to redefine
0: what infrastructure
1: is? I think the boundaries of what infrastructure is when you think about it in a physical sense are what we'd all know. But when you mm. think about it in a financial and a commercial sense, uh, it expands. I actually think the better way to think about it is in a community and a social sense. So if, if, if in that sense infrastructure is anything that allows you to be um, performing your function, moving from place to place, uh, connecting to the internet, doing, you know, pr- getting pr- provided services, anything that facilitates that, whether that's a physical thing like a road mm-hmm. or a digital thing like digital storage or a battery in your car, anything mm-hmm. like that that's helping you. Pr- you know, provide those services, that for us really is the infrastructure that, that yeah. society needs.
2: So you say us, it's uh, interesting because we mentioned before you're the co-head of Macquarie Capital. I, I don't think we've seen that uh, in other, or certainly I'm not aware of it in any other s- similar businesses. Mm. How does that work for you guys? Uh, it works really
1: well. So my co-head, uh, my partner is uh, Tim Joyce. His background is as a lawyer. And he grew up through our business more on the listed market M&A equity capital market side of the business. Mm-hmm. So he's a, an industrials uh, banker, as it were. Uh, so advising clients in listed market M&A was his his upbringing. So he's more on the listed market side of things. I've come up through more the private side, that is government, private capital, infrastructure yeah. projects, and the, and the project side of the business. And because Macquarie Capital does both, having us both co-heading the business provides us a really great flexibility. We're quite uh, complementary in the skills that we we bring. We perform the role in a joint fashion, so where we, either of us can do anything that our role requires in the business, but there's a natural focus in those areas of, of background that we've got. So it works really well. We've got okay. a, such a breadth of business across Macquarie Capital that yeah. it allows us to uh, lead the business together. To
0: Are there other, other parts of Macquarie that have a similar co-head?
1: approach? Uh, There are. In fact, most recently, the global Macquarie Capital business now has Uh, co-heads. Tim Bishop, who ran Macquarie Capital globally, retired last year. And we've now got two global co-heads. Michael Silverton, who runs what's the um, capital markets side of it. So the advisory and capital solutions business. Dan Wong runs the infrastructure and energy group, which Mm. is the other half of Macquarie Capital. Uh, as co-heads of our Macquarie Capital business. And they've done that largely to focus on those two areas. In Australia, because the market here is so well-developed and we're quite large in the market, all of our activities are pretty much intertwined. In other Mm. markets globally that Macquarie operates in, for example, in Asia, we don't do a lot of advisory work, but Mm. we do do a lot of project and energy and infrastructure development work. Mm -hmm. So our IEG part of the business is very dominant Uh, of the things that we do in that part of the world. In America, it's a much more advisory and a capital uh, driven business. We do a lot of debt underwriting. We help a lot of private uh, investors, financial sponsors, uh, do private equity type transactions and finance those. So We've got these different natures of our business all around the world. In Australia, we've got all of them all together. Mm. Uh, And as we've grown overseas, and Macquarie is now actually two thirds of our earnings as a group, Macquarie Capital. Uh, included is overseas. Uh, so we are an Australian company and we're, we're big and busy in the Australian market, but two thirds now of our, our earnings are, are overseas.
2: But so you, if there's a, I don't know, a meeting with your team. You say one thing, your partner Susan we very over. rarely say a different thing, <laughs> and if we do, it'll be it'll be between the two of us. So, oh, so it's like parents <laughs>
1: <laughs> work it out behind the scenes and then have it yeah, in front of the kids. Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. But the nice thing about it is, Tim and I are actually very complementary. We think about things in the same way. We've got okay. the same same culture, or we, we we want the team to operate in the same the same sort of way. Um, yeah, it's it, the things that we disagree about are you know sort of food selection over lunch or
2: something <laughs> like that. It's very rare that we're disagreeing about things, which is good, and that never reach. Is a you know a blow up style of disagreement if it's just about the lunch? No, I think our staff are waiting for that to happen. It <laughs> hasn't happened. Wow. So I wonder though,
0: so is, is there something um, about culturally about Macquarie that makes that work? Because the traditional instinctive view is that you have, um, you know, those internal tensions of leadership are encapsulated in mm. one individual at the head of a business unit. There's accountability from that person to their yeah. boss. Yeah. But yet, on a couple of instances in really key positions in your business, you've Got two. You split that. I just yeah. wonder, is there something about your organisation and the culture that's allowed that to be successful? I, look, I'd
1: say there is. Um, and then you'll say, well, what is that? I'd probably put it down to the collaborative nature of what we do. So when you think of the senior leadership across Macquarie, whether you're leading a business, you're leading an industry group, you're leading a product or anything like that, or leading a region as, as as Tim and I are, um, there's a collaborative nature of the things that we do that means all of the senior all of the junior, everyone needs to get on and head in the same sort of direction Um, so that the competition between two people or two industry groups or two different things isn't additive to the things that we can do or the things that we can um, provide for our clients or investment partners. Mm. So fundamentally, everyone needs to be heading in the same direction. So that's, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that we've all been working together for such a long time. Macquarie is a place that has... Uh, amazing longevity the Mm. average tenure of our executive directors that is the senior group um, the leadership group uh, in australia is 17 years with macquarie Uh, so we've worked together for a long time we know how each other work we've got our own ideas and clients and partners and things that we're doing but everyone does that together so that i think that's the that's the key
2: to it might reflect also the the partnership model that investment banks actually came from where it was that wouldn't necessarily be applicable to to other parts of the business, but certainly investment banks were previously all partnerships until they got listed, um, and and maybe that collaboration mm. is more is more applicable to the to that model. Yeah, than- and we had
1: a di- we had a different upbringing. We we started in fact last year was our 50th anniversary, Macquarie. Um, right. uh, so we started in 1969 here in Australia as the offshoot of a British merchant bank called Hill Samuel. Uh, started by three people um, and it wasn't a partnership. It was, a, it was set up as a company okay. to start with but it was set up as a the staff in a similar sort of way, the staff share in the profit that's made by the company. So if there's a profit made for the owners, the shareholders, uh, staff share some of that and that's distributed amongst the staff as, right. as profit share. So it's a, in a way it's probably what you're referring to in the sense yeah. that everyone is incentivized to uh, be as successful and, and profitable as we can be, and nicely, we were profitable from that first year uh, when Hill Samuel gave uh, those three folk the ability to set up the company. They gave themselves a couple of years before they'd turn a profit, and Hill Samuel were happy that they were profitable in year one, and we have been every year since, which is which is a nice track record, but also probably goes to that cultural element of everyone heading in the same direction. Yeah.
2: So some of that, uh, some of that history that you've mentioned, also. In, uh saw Macquarie become pretty much a world leader in, in uh, interest in, in, in terms of the interest in infrastructure assets um, and Australia become a world leader in, in a lot of ways as a result can you talk us through some of the some of mm. Macquarie's first um, innovations in that area and maybe also your Involvement in them. I know you, you you started mentioning them. What was in the UK? We mm. can you go through a little a bit of that. Yeah, in more so detail? It started,
1: infrastructure started for Macquarie in '94. So yep. Hills Motorway here in Sydney. Now the the M2 was the first infrastructure asset that we had an involvement in helping finance, uh, and so that was around making sure that there was finance available for the development of that that Hills Motorway asset, which was again driven by the nature of the cash flows coming from that, the nature of the investment that might be required. And so the heritage of our business in the infrastructure started from that point. And the way that it has developed a Macquarie is really a series of adjacent step. So we thought, oh, okay, well, we, can, we can do um, toll roads. That's okay. So we moved into looking at other toll roads that we could help finance and develop. Uh, airports had a similar characteristic based on passengers going through the airport as opposed to uh, cars traveling down the road and then regulated utilities. And so as we-
2: But so sorry, so that was the Macquarie Capital arm at first, right? It was just it wasn't advisory. called that at the time, right, but, but it was it was called structured finance, I think, at the time. So that function. So the, the yeah. so you, you identified airports, but you weren't owning them at that point.
1: No, we were helping finance them. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we were we were helping financing them. So there was
1: that was really helping government or developers yeah. finance those uh, finance the development of those assets. Then as government started to look to privatise some of those assets and then the next sort of classic example of that is Sydney Airport when that came up but there Mm -hmm. was a number of different assets that we'd been involved in uh, both in Australia and around the world between Hills Motorway and and that point. That again is also a financing activity in the sense that um, we had by that stage the capital that wanted to get invested in owning those Uh, and Macquarie, to facilitate that or create that opportunity, oftentimes we would say, look, we'll do that. We'll we'll buy it and put it on our balance sheet. And then after that, because we can manage that transaction and we can make that happen, we will then bring in investors behind us and alongside us to co-own that asset with us. And then ultimately you might put that asset into one of the long-term funds. And so the Macquarie Capital part of the business's job was to create the opportunity, make the transaction happen, and then the longer-term investors would would own it, whether that's a fund or some of the super funds directly, um, and so forth. So that's yeah. the, that's been the model. When yep.
0: you um, just listening to you de- describe some of the history and Macquarie's part in it, um, it's striking you. You talk about private finance and infrastructure. You talk about um, asset sales and asset recycling. Um, you talk about the the, this, the disciplines that private finance brings and brings mm. investors in stuff. Um, quite aside from Macquarie's activity, Australia is genuinely a leader in it a is, lot of these yeah. places. And I think often we um, sort of the, the general public's view seems to be or certainly the media's view seems to be on a lot of infrastructure things like, oh, Northern Europe's really good at this or Singapore's really good mm. at this or uh, the, an example from the US that's really good. At this. But Australia genuinely is a, a world leader.
1: Australia genuinely is a world leader and I think it's come out from a number of reasons. We We've had as a nation a stable developed um investment opportunity in australia we've always been importers of capital uh, and a nation that has needed to develop the assets to support the growth of of what we've been doing so we've had a a a national need to do that we've had a superannuation system here that has had that build up of capital saved Mm. to then be invested Mm. and so we've found a way and a need to have people that help that capital get invested so the skills and expertise in investing the superannuation money. And we've Mm. had a set of governments that have recognized the partnership element of private developers, private builders, private owners, private capital coming together with government desire uh, to have assets built and available for the community. So you put all that together, and then what you've seen is you've seen that Australian expertise that's developed as a result of that, then head to other markets where Mm. that has emerged, so the UK, Canada, uh, and other places that are at the forefront of you infrastructure think of finance. Do we
0: effectively leverage that ex- that expertise export opportunity for infrastructure? Do we do enough of, I and mean, maybe we do it under the radar, and we just don't hear enough mm. about it? But I wonder to what extent, you know, in things like the um, a free trade agreement with the UK, for instance, that might yep. well be coming after the yep. exit from the European Union, is is this kind of thing an area where we should be saying what are the, what are the sticking points that stop? Australia being a better exporter of those skills and the advisory services that you guys provide?
1: Um, I think we're actually pretty good at it. When when you go around the world and you talk to international investors and international firms that are involved in infrastructure investment or development and so forth, we often forget in Australia that we are good at it and we are known to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And around the world, you'll talk to those investors and you'll sit here in Australia and say, oh, there's a bit of dysfunction happening here. The risk allocation over here is getting a bit out of weight. This governments are, you know, not developing a lot of infrastructure at the moment. Then you go overseas and they're all saying, fantastic, you guys have still got it right down in Australia. Mm. You forget actually that the mm. regulatory settings, the rule of law, the investment opportunity, the market, the economy here is conducive to continuing to do those things and you've got the skills and the understanding to do it. We drive a lot of the innovation in the structures and the way that transactions come together, which is then exported offshore. So... We can always do more we can always be more helpful and we can always be making more of it i'm sure we can but Mm. we are actually i think at the at the forefront of the expertise and you see it because you've got a lot of big aussie funds and firms offshore making those investments and driving things you know ifm who are offshore making lots of investments you've got a lot of the super funds here who are now going offshore by themselves you see a lot of australian people who have very senior positions in a lot of the infrastructure funds and investors and advisors based in Canada, based in London, based what, in one of our, all for, of our firms,
2: yeah. one of our former colleagues actually is it, Jonathan Kennedy, um, and yeah. who's is over in New Jersey doing pretty much that, although not not for a fund for, for a for, government agency for government, yeah. And I'm
0: absolutely appalled you've mentioned his name. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he is going to have to uh, cut
2: uh, that yeah, out. Yeah, well, but but <laughs> it, it, the the sort of anecdotal feedback is that all these Australians keep going over there and saying, why can't you just do it the well, way we do it? it. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and they'll, they'll, they'll battle for, for 10 years and then yeah. just come back home because you can't get deals across the line. Um, and mm. it's, but at the same time, there's this funny um, situation, in the, particularly in the US, where uh, there's a, an example that I was just reading about the other day with the, the high-speed rail line that's just been built in Florida. Completely privately funded, completely privately initiated, um, has had no no subsidy, no no no, pretty much no involvement from government. Um, so at the same time, there's this – some, th- and that's not necessarily for high-speed rail, but other infrastructure assets. Yeah, it's quite yeah. possible all over the US in a way that we don't necessarily see here. So w- w- what is, w- what's, w- what's the issue? What's the difference? How is it that those kinds of things are possible there? And yet every time we see, for example, some private sector entities suggest a high-speed rail line here – yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they're the ones I'd, that are going I'd, back to the US. Possibly, so. I'd, I'd probably make the observation that high-speed rail is probably a specific
1: asset class that has its has its challenges in the Australian context yeah. due to distance and yeah. due to the physical nature of our cities. Absolutely. and high-speed rail works when you get them in close to the centre of cities, and we've got problems with harbours and you know hills and all those sorts of things that that add costs. So I, I wouldn't. I'll
0: stop being a civil engineer. I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't,
1: I wouldn't ping it on no, course, ping it on high-speed rail, but. Uh, I do think that there's, there's probably a couple of elements to that. One is our state governments in particular here, supported by the federal government you know, from time to time in various regimes, have proactively sought the engagement of the private sector in helping develop infrastructure. And that's grown in the sorts of uh, types of projects that they've been able to do over time. Other jurisdictions in the states you mentioned, really that state-based system hasn't caught up to that at okay. all. So you get these conversations and you say, well, we'd like to help you develop a new road over here or a new bridge, there's a lack of understanding as to how the, the private finance model works, whether right. it's completely privately financed or a partnership type approach with government providing some of the the elements of the, the projects. Uh, and a lot of those people who are overseas, <laughs> Jonathan included, will be educating and explaining and you've got people like Joe Hockey, Former ambassador to the to the US, who spent a lot of time doing that. Absolutely, and you know it'll just be a matter of time. I think before projects unlock, there this this weight of capital that is looking to meet the community's needs and experta- expectations around the development or the upgrade of infrastructure. Those two things will meet for sure. I think the thing we forget about the US, you know, it's 50 two countries.
0: or three, yeah, two or three US yes. states, and you've got a whole Australia. You actually yes. don't need um, you don't need Australia to act. Uh, sorry, the US to act federally for there to be a massive market for infrastructure development. There are a few states particularly driven by governors that are at scale. There and is, doing and so you, and
1: you, see, um, you see a lot of Australian expertise over there in utilities, in transport, in uh, aeronautical side of things, in airports, in construction. Um, transurban are big in the in mm. the US and looking to do more. Lend lease are big in the US and looking to do more. And they do things like defence housing and they do developments, not like they do in the UK and here big integrated civil-type developments. They do a lot of military-type work. Now, that's just the nature of the work mm. they're doing for the federal government in the US. But I think that'll expand out. We're starting to see it in airports with some of the port authorities. We're starting to see it in toll roads or road expansions, in particular things like hot lanes um, in some of the, the motorway networks. and
2: So is there anything that they're doing overseas in some of these other jurisdictions where, where you've looked at, and I mean, particularly in terms of the um, either the way government procures or the way mm. government um, is open to uh, private sector-led uh, infrastructure proposals? Is there anything that you've seen overseas that would be good to adopt here? I th- so there's lots of knowledge transfer
1: back and forth, both to Australia and from Australia as you go overseas yeah. and people who develop things in different markets, bringing those here and, and going the other way. So we, we like to do that and we're an internationally sure. connected, connected organisation and part of our job is to do that. Some of the things that we've been seeing overseas perhaps that are here or are coming here are where you have seen governments want to create a particular outcome by, say, setting up a partnership or a PPP. There's a concession model that they're setting up to provide that private Opportunity to get involved. Some of those have been by way of subsidy schemes. So you think about renewable energy, for example, mm-hmm. and you've seen um, schemes set up in jurisdictions to encourage investment in renewable generation uh, where that scheme has been something, a model that's been adopted around, around the world. We've seen that come into Australia. Uh, in renewable energy in particular, we've seen that stop in a lot of jurisdictions now because actually a lot of those subsidies or credit schemes aren't required because the cost of renewable generation has come down Mm. and involvement from technological development has driven that down, so the dynamic changes again. But we do see that flowing around the world, both both to and from Australia. I'd say Australia is probably a net exporter of structures and ideas and private capital ideas and ways to do things as opposed to an importer. We tend to be quite thoughtful in that regard.
2: One of the examples, I guess, and it's it's a it's a pretty big change of uh, of how the private sector has involved itself in in. Australia's infrastructure is your headquarters. I don't. know. Is it headquarters at Martin Place or is it just? The, the it will be. It will be, be the Well, it is
1: our. It is our headquarters currently. Fifty Martin Place, the existing building. Yep. Is
2: that the? Is that the new model? Is that that where you know the private sector just mm. um, proposes it unsolicited and and leads it and delivers the whole thing?
0: Explain what the model is first, because not everybody will be yeah familiar Yeah, with yeah what sure.
2: You've done. So so that so
1: the question you're talking about the site you're talking about is Martin Place in Sydney, which is a, a station site in Sydney. Our office at Fifty Martin. Place, which is our headquarters building, sits adjacent to Martin Place, the, the, the street, uh, and also Martin Place Station. Mm-hmm. So, as part of the city and southwest uh, metro development, there's a new Martin Place station for the new uh, metro railway that will be integrated with the existing Eastern Suburbs Railway there at Martin Place. To build that station, uh, the government needed to uh, acquire buildings above the station site, knock them down then redevelop the station. And then the plan the government had was to auction off the air rights to those sites once they'd built the station for developers to rebuild commercial buildings above them. So that was the, the plan as the as the project was developing. Uh, Macquarie put in a proposal to say, well, we will, uh, on behalf of the, the government, we'll build the station. In fact, we'll build the station and the commercial precinct around it, the retail precinct, the public plaza and the commercial buildings above it on an integrated fashion because the government was going to build them piecemeal Mm -hmm. and then auction the air rights off. So we offered to buy the air rights to it upfront to build the station for the government to build that plaza and then ultimately to build the, the towers there. And yes, that was done under the market-led proposal regime or the unsolicited proposal regime, as it's called in, in New South Wales, where the private sector can come up with an idea. It's not a government tender. The government hasn't announced a tender and it's uh, there's a competitive process. You can go to government and say, we've got this idea. We'd like to do it for you. Government can say, "Oh, that's a good idea. Um, I like that. How would it work?" And then you can go through the stages of yep. that proposal process as it goes. So that that's how it's come about. Talk a bit more about it in a minute. I think it's a fantastic project, um, a most exciting project I've worked on in my time at at Macquarie in my career. But as a as a philosophy of private people. The community coming and saying, here we've got an idea, we think this will be good, we can help you develop it. We think that's fantastic and we encourage that certainly across the states in Australia and other jurisdictions as well being able to say we'd like to help, we'd like to come with an idea. We need government to be a partner in this because the government might, it might be connecting to a transport hub, it might be on government land, it might be something connecting to government at the other end and the government at the end of the day needs to approve it
0: under whatever. So
2: are you helping? Sorry, I'm going to play devil's
0: advocate first just for fun. So (laughs) uh, in that circumstance, and let's not talk about Martin Place because I think it is quite unique. um, How does government satisfy itself that it's getting value for money? Yep. If someone's coming to them with a partially made proposition already, Mm. um, uh, there may be a uniqueness element because there may be a real asset that that entity has or a, or a right yeah. to occupy or whatever. But but beyond that, how has government satisfied itself that this is a a value-for-money taxpayer proposition without the impact of competition to deliver? To deliver.
1: It. Yeah, that's right. So part of the answer is the, the uniqueness element to it. So part of the market-led proposal regime or the unsolicited proposal regime is a requirement for that proposal to have a unique element that means that Others couldn't actually develop that proposal. Mm. Uh, that is a pretty high threshold mm. to get over, uh, and it comes through uh, ownership of a particular technology or a license or a, a unique idea or a new f- unique physical attribute that, that no one else is able to. And in this case, it was ownership of the land. Uh, it was own and, and the building. Yeah, ownership of the land and the building on which our headquarters stands, and also the ability to integrate and provide a different solution to integrate the site through the north underneath that building right. to the south. So you have one connected mm. precinct. So the unique nature of a, a tunnel effectively underneath our existing building uh, there, which we were able to, to offer. Hey,
0: you'll be able to use your PhD on that to test the movements so, in the building. So <laughs>
1: here's the weird thing. Here's where it all connects back together <laughs> for me. So my PhD was in predicting damage to historic buildings due to building rail tunnels underneath them. And what we are doing in Martin Place is building a rail tunnel under an existing historic building. Wow. So it is exactly <laughs> what I did my PhD in, which was a little weird. And not everyone at work knew this. In fact, yeah. there was a, there's a, a good story about we're in our former CEO's office explaining various elements of the, the transaction. And as all good CEOs do, you know, they ask questions and they keep asking the questions until they exhaust how far down the knowledge base that you've actually got. And um, there's always a natural suspicion of asking technical questions of the investment team because usually you yeah. will have the engineers or something someone else answering those questions and I was getting this line of questioning about so what happens to the building when you dig the tunnels, and will it move, and how much will it move, and will things crack? And I, I was answering all these, all these questions, and I could see Nicholas Moore, our former CEO, getting very suspicious. As to what, <laughs> what, why, does John know the answer? Well, why, why does Jenny know the answer to all these, all these questions? And at some point, one of my colleagues said, "You know, John's got a PhD in this particular,
2: <laughs> this particular thing." Nicholas, oh, <laughs> was, was, it, was it secretly you that had sent around the <laughs> paper anonymously? And said, "Oh, uh, look, John has this. Uh... <laughs> I know all these things. <laughs> now I don't pretend to have done any of the work on that on our no. on our project. We've got
1: um, <laughs> we've got partners and consultants who are doing all of that. But again, it's it's interesting. The understanding of the physical yeah. nature of what you're building really does help you." design the concept and finance it and convince people it's a good idea and all of those yeah, things. Yeah. So it does actually come home <laughs> there. But <laughs> back to your question, I think the the a- the answer to your question is how does government determine value for money? And the answer there is in the normal way they do in a competitive process as well. So the fundamentals of a competitive process are that you've got competing bidders who one of whom will give the best price hmm. uh, and that best price is then compared to a government benchmark – called various things, but to, to, to meet the value for money threshold, whether it's a public sector comparator or some other, um, some other name, there is a test as to whether government could procure this in a yeah. more efficient way than the private sector. And so any project needs to meet that. In an unsolicited proposal, you're only comparing one thing to that benchmark, but that's the same process. Um, and the other element to all of that is is this, this is generally something in an unsolicited sense that government hasn't thought that it could procure or would procure or would build or design now. Mm. Maybe it was in their plan in the future or it's different or it's enhanced or there's some additional benefit that the community will get out of mm. proceeding. Uh, some of those things you can put a value on, some of those you can't. So does it pass the test that actually this is a good community thing to do, the government needs to be satisfied of that as well. And there's been the vast majority of proposals that have come to governments of all natures in an unsolicited fashion haven't gone ahead because they haven't right. passed any of those tests. It's actually only a handful that that have proceeded. Um, but we think it's it should be encouraged. We think... Uh, the community, private sector coming with ideas, helping government deliver on its outcomes and aims is a good thing. Government's got the right to, to choose to approve them or not.
2: So Mm -hmm. is that something that you're, that's occupying much of your time, that kind of project origination from. From within Macquarie, or do you do, do, do uh, other stakeholders come to you to help with that? Both those things happen. Both those things
1: happen. We we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we how do we create and generate investment opportunities. How right. do we create and generate assets? And we'll respond to processes that are out in the market. Of course, we'll help bid, we'll advise, we'll participate in those. But if we see opportunities out there that that we think is a good idea to go and develop that or propose a
2: development, um, we'll go ahead and, and propose it. We've spoken a fair bit about um, that kind of uh, private sector-led, I guess, mostly projects. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess l- larger than projects as well. One interesting thing that uh, we d- we discuss quite a bit on this show, and and is happening a bit more, is is private sector-led um, or, or influenced policy development. Now that mm. sometimes has bad connotations to it, if it's you know it's a bunch of lobbyists protecting self-interest. But I, I mean something more along the lines of. Um, uh, what we heard recently from BlackRock, which was uh, you know the world's biggest asset manager, announcing that they're they're out they're getting out of fossil fuels. I think they've signed up to I can't remember what it's called, but some kind yeah, of a, yeah. a action committee or group or something like that. Um, do you see much of a role for um, particularly actually in the finance sector? Do you see much of a role for investors and fund managers to to take that kind of not well? Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't advocate, say moral yeah, stance, I, but, but, but something yeah, something saying. outside of just profit. Do you hmm. see much of a role
1: for that? So we we see more and more of that occurring. Well, um, Shamara has been pretty active. Yeah, it's on a, on so that. those two things are probably slightly different. So we're busy doing all sorts of things from a Macquarie point of view, um, we're getting on and doing things that we think make sense when we're trying to find opportunities to bring all of that saved capital together with what the community wants and the needs. And we see our job as sitting in the middle and facilitating that uh, and the things that the community needs and the things that we need to invest in, in terms of developing infrastructure, developing social services, developing renewable energy and so forth are the things that, that, that we're operating in. I'll talk a bit more about that as you go, but your question around... Are we seeing more active, activist even, Mm. investors uh, requiring of the companies that they invest in to behave in a certain way? We are starting to see more and more of that. And so when you think of that environmental, social, um, governance uh, type of lens that investors are applying to the investments that they make, that is becoming more and more a part of their decision-making process. So we saw it, we've seen it in things like tobacco back in the day. So you know, weapons, tobacco. Um, Now we're starting to see it come into carbon intensity or um, uh, climate or environmental or all of these other elements of filter that investors will apply before they're investing in something it's very it's very but the different maybe the difference you're talking about is when they're already invested in something so BlackRock's a good example. Yeah. we invest in this company we're now going to be talking about and really trying to steer that company to do or not to do things by allocating our capital in yeah. a certain way and yes we're starting to see more of that do,
2: it's it's interesting that you mentioned tobacco uh, because my next question was do you think it 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 makes a difference because if you look at tobacco um Absolutely, Pl- lots of investors are saying that they won't be involved in that kind of sector anymore, and yet the major tobacco companies are. Pro- I think I've, I've seen that they're the most profitable that they've, that they've ever been. Um, and I guess I want the, the in the in the context of what we're describing now, do you think it makes a difference if when BlackRock says they're moving out of fossil fuels, or is BlackRock moving out and some other investor just replaces them? Yeah, look, I think the.
1: The answer to that is that if there is a community or a market or a social desire for something, that'll be provided in some yeah. way, shape or form. And if it's been provided or manufactured or the service is being provided, there'll be investors there of some description to, to invest in that and provide that services if there's a there's an appropriate return for it. So whatever that, that is, uh, that product or that, that service, they'll ultimately be, if there's a market for it, there'll be someone to, to invest in it. So... The answer to your question, in short, is yes. There may well be others, but I think that the um, the the lens of a broader societal change or a broader um, community groundswell around some of these issues around the environment, uh, around energy, around carbon, and around climate is probably broader than just one particular product or service that that you see, because it goes to so many different parts of the. Parts of the economy and the way that we conduct business and the way that um, things are generated, manufactured, and services are provided. So it's a bit of a broader element, I think, to it than just the, some of the specific examples is it a good thing that investors have a role to play in talking about where their capital is allocated yes because that's what drives that's what drives markets and that's what drives investment decisions and capital should be allocated to the most efficient place where people are getting a a, a return
2: certainly but, someone the size of blackrock should if they if they're pulling out well, they're then, yeah, large, that's got to have, have an influence a, yeah, yeah
1: that that's right i just think it's the uh, the additional uh, investment filters or decision hurdles or reasons that you might Invest on top of a purely financial
2: return uh, that people are now more conscious of, actively using. That's that's probably the difference. So does you, do, I mean maybe it's something that'll come later. But if we just just for for the purposes of, of, of this question, let's stick to um, the well, uh, fossil fuel industries. Do you think that um, fund managers like Macquarie or like the the you know even bigger ones like BlackRock? Do, do you think they'll see a difference in their cost of capital, and, and actually have to change behaviour as a as a result of these decisions? Uh, the, well, the companies that they're that that are taking the investment, I mean. Yeah, well, I guess it's
1: the decision of the investors to allocate their capital where they see. Fit, they may choose to not allocate that capital into different areas based on the filters you describe um, does that have an impact on the cost of capital for the company yeah um, in terms of investors decisions about where it goes it will for, for sure so can okay. give if, if capital is scarce it tends to be more expensive um, so that's that'll just be an implication in the in the ordinary course for for scarcity of capital going into into different things so if you want to develop uh, a coal-fired power station um, today, as opposed to develop a coal-fired power station 20 years ago, a lot of things being equal, uh, capital might cost you more today because people are withdrawing from that sector. Um, but there's and, other things so, driving
0: yeah. that cost of capital, like lots the, of the other view things. view yeah.
1: of risk on it in, in a yeah. yeah. particular those things, yeah. So you know, answering the specific module. question around sort of just narrowing it down to that. You know, from from a finance theory point of view, that's where you get to. But you are right. There's all these other elements around actually the risk of, um, you know, the, the risk of the regulatory environment, the risk yeah. of what government policy might be, the risk of what the community wants and am I investing in an asset that in 20 years' time no one wants that service And there's a technology being, or, risk as well, technology which is risk. a
0: great yeah. segue to uh, uh, yeah. another route of questioning, which is... Um, To take to extend that example, well, there is a technology risk associated with a a carbon intensive um, uh, energy generation platform because someone might well invent um, Mm. a a firmed renewable type approach that is just cheaper to
2: deliver the energy. Or we might get a carbon price. Or or we might get a carbon price. Um,
0: But to extend the question about technology and maybe looking forward to the future a bit, I. in, in my interactions with your colleagues, I hear a lot, and, and across the sector, I hear a lot more about technology in the last mm. 18 months, two years, than I yeah. did before, both as an investable asset class, but also um, from a disruption perspective. So one thinks about pieces of infrastructure um, that are uh, traditionally seen as something with natural monopoly characteristics that maybe now are more vulnerable to a uh, yeah. disruption in a version of the future. I wonder if you could... Um, reflect for a moment on on those kind of areas around
1: technology Mm, no we're definitely seeing so technology data the digital nature of the provision of services including infrastructure and transport and and so on is a a big thematic Um, we see lots of opportunities in that Mm. thematic actually in terms of the way that we're going to be able to develop assets um, new technologies coming in to replace old technologies a lot of those are cheaper and more efficient. So one of the big technology trends you're referring to in energy is just the simple fact that the cheapest form of energy to deliver now tends to be a renewable form of energy. Mm. So you're going to produce cheaper electrons by building a wind farm in certain areas and off you go. And so that's the thing that's developed because it's the, the cheapest and most efficient. So the technology change driving that rather than policy or anything else around it is is evident in a lot of the areas that you talk about. Mm. Um, the other thing too there where we're seeing a lot of technology investment, a lot of opportunities is in existing assets. So existing Mm. utilities, existing airports, existing roads, and the technology enhancements around things like making things more efficient, Mm. monitoring the status and the maintenance status of assets so that you can more efficiently maintain those at a lower cost, um, that you can enhance the capacity of assets, whether they're a generator or a road, Classic example is if cars drive closer together on a fixed set of road space, you can get more vehicles down mm. the road. So if the cars are talking to each other and they can safely travel at a closer distance. So all of these efficiencies coming through that
2: technology. Is that being, fa- is that, that's, that's a very good example. Is that, mm. do you feel like that's being factored in? Let's just take the, the platooning or, or, or just them mm-hmm. being autonomous and driving closer together. Is that being factored into current, um, uh, project development sufficiently? As in, are we building too much or, or, mm. or, or are investors taking account of that kind of risk? Uh, they are, yeah. I, th- I think people are conscious of the technology coming, the technology that's available, the
1: faster pace at which technology is is becoming available. So if mm. you look at all mm. the predictions of where uh, renewable energy costs are a good one, but electric vehicles will be another one, I'm sure there'll be a similar set of charts that say, well, here's, here 10 years ago is our prediction of where the price will be. And then Eight years ago it's here and I'm, yeah. you know, for those on the phone, I'm making <laughs> gestures with my hands and the prices yeah. are coming down and we've always got it wrong yeah. uh, around the cost of that that curve and the technology curve's come down faster than we've always predicted. So I think people are, but I still think we'll always be surprised at the the faster pace of technology development. But people are thinking about it, people are factoring it in, um, people with existing assets are now using the technology that's available that they wouldn't have thought of in the investment time frame yeah. when they invested in that utility, now they're able to go and do different things well, than they thought about. So that's definitely happening.
0: The other area of the future I wanted to talk about is just the future of private financing infrastructure. We've spoken mm. about Australia being at the kind of frontier yeah. of that and we've spoken about some things happening overseas and, and vice versa that we should be importing and exporting. Um, big question, where, where's the future? What's the next range of innovations? Where's the next focus of private finance in infrastructure? Mm.
1: So the thematics we're seeing, the one that everyone knows about is the continued weight of capital Mm. that's sitting there unspent looking for for opportunities. So that's been a thematic for a number of years. Now that continues uh, as the savings through our superannuation funds and other pension fund schemes around the world continues to grow. Infrastructure fund managers who are raising capital but haven't spent it, that dry powder up over 200 Mm. billion around the world now is at last count. So there's a lot of pressure on uh, that capital to get deployed. So what does that mean? Again, it means that that capital is looking at more and more unusual opportunities. Uh, The classic opportunities for that capital has been government long-term leases or privatizations. Certainly in Australia, there's not a lot of those opportunities left. So people are looking at a couple of, there's a couple of trends. One is the transactions that they're getting involved in are bigger and people are Mm. wanting to put more dollars out the door in each transaction. So that's a thematic. And so the targets or the investment opportunities that we're seeing people look at are getting bigger and bigger. Is that a good thing? It's a good thing in the sense that um, you know there's, there's this sort of expanding universe of things that people will will look at. Uh, it's a bad thing in the sense that the limited number of opportunities in that space Absolutely. mean that it's harder for that capital to get to get away. One of the things that trends that we see, therefore, it, because of that, is a thematic we think we'll see a bit more of of this partnership of the investors with some of the big industrial companies. So. This, this is where you've, say, got a, uh, a set of investors, Transurban have done this pretty well actually here in uh, West Connects and in Queensland Motorways. So you've got the industrial company being Transurban, the expert asset operator and developer. They're bringing that private capital alongside them, you know, your OLS, Supers, your RDIs, CPP, IB in that case and they work as development partners. So as those assets continue to need capital or capex, as they grow and expand, they've got the opportunity to continue to invest Mm -hmm. alongside that partner. So we've seen it in other examples in power development in pipelines in renewables Mm. and so where you see a lot of these assets that are in industrial companies that have infrastructure like characteristics long-term cash flows long-term contracts um, those companies bringing that private capital in alongside them Mm. they're still the experts at providing the service or doing the transport or hauling the coal or whatever it might be but having some of that private capital come in so more Corporate and commercial and industrial focus
2: as opposed to government focus. That'll be one of the thematics I think we'll see throughout this year. Mm -hmm. Um, In a similar kind of crystal ball gazing Mm -hmm. uh, question, um, I guess we, you know, interest rates are the lowest they've ever been. Um, We keep, we keep, being told that uh, you know infrastructure investment is is definitely one of the best ways for governments to stimulate the economy, because um, the economy has slowed in the last in, in the last mm. couple of years, um, and yet governments are still pursuing uh, surpluses around all around Australia, all the state governments and federal. Um, what do you think is the the merit of that, and and what impact do you think that'll have um, over, over the next? few years while while those surpluses are being pursued. Mm. So I think the uh, I
1: mean the fundamental question there is should is a lever for government on the fiscal side as opposed to the monetary exactly. side mm-hmm. exactly. needed to continue to grow the economy, the levers left in the um, on the monetary side for reserve banks, not just here but all around the world, in terms of those low interest rates, are uh, there? They're, 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 they're out, left. or they're well, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty close to out. Yeah. So, in terms of stimulating the economy, uh, there's a not a lot left there. To, not a lot of levers to pull. So, just, Q-
2: just QE left after that, and it's you know we're still unclear what the well, that's what it. The- that's it.
1: Exactly. So, so from a from a budgetary side or a fiscal side, should governments, if they want to be uh, stimulating the economy, be looking to make those productive investments? Uh, yes, they should. That's a good idea. And that certainly has been uh, the call from the Reserve Bank Governor here and others as well around uh, uh, around the place to stimulate economy economies. Making those investments is one um, channel, one lever that you can pull for that. Um, and that's capital going into new projects and making those investments and that needs uh, you know, funding. That doesn't have to be government funded. It can be private capital, it can be government capital and a combination of both. You need the government to set up the framework and all the things that, that we know about there. but the stimulatory effect of the the dollar going in it doesn't matter if it's a private dollar or a government dollar so that's one observation the other observation is that it not sh- it's not just those investments but productive Policy around um, ongoing productivity improvements and mm-hmm. efficiencies, and industrial processes and manufacturing and training, and people encouraged to spend money on Supply research side. and development. Yeah, all of those things, as well, I think, are part of the levers government I have got to pull around encouraging growth in the. In the economy. So, all the things that they're trying to encourage, it's not just do I spend money on more infrastructure? Yeah. Actually, this whole wide range of things is, is quite important. I'm, um, I'm
0: going to just roll out my soapbox because it's an area I've been quite focal on is that if mm. a stimulus is required or decided by governments, um, it's got to look at the, the lower end. Of scale of projects because what we don't yeah. want to be doing is trying to
2: accelerate multi-billion-dollar projects. projects. That's right. And yeah.
0: no, maintenance, road maintenance. That's
2: a classic one. That's that actually related to something that uh, yeah. I was going to ask before, which is you know if these deals that you're because that's what you were predicting that the the there's a mm. seems to be more of an appetite for these giant deals. Are we? Does that mean we're overlooking? some of the smaller but potentially much more yeah. economically yes beneficial no. projects. So, so there's a lot of that happening yeah. though
0: as well. I think that that's hit, that's masked by the fact that we have like mega projects that appear to dominate the the pipeline but actually in the mm. in the work that we do at infrastructure partnerships Australia with we, with tracking the pipeline through anzip which is there's infrastructurepipeline.org <laughs> <laughs> um good part you being know, too <laughs> yeah, there is actually a, it, it's it's um, it, it, yeah. It's a fairly um, normal distribution of the, of the types it of It is, and I,
1: I think, and, and you know, not to be misunderstood around the, the larger scale and like the big funds who are getting bigger want to put b- bigger licks of capital yeah. out. And so that, that's certainly a trend. And so they're going to do those bigger projects. But that's not at the exclusion of the opportunities to invest at the smaller scale. And there's lots of different opportunities at that smaller scale. When you talk about things like maintenance or efficiencies or, Putting solar panels on roofs—you've got plenty of investors at that smaller space okay. as well. So there's no there's no problem with that capital across the across the board. And some of those so. things are scalable as well. Like if you Definitely. think about yeah, if you road, program road, them road, up. Yeah. yeah. So Correct. road maintenance, yeah.
0: Victorian has done the the suburban roads packages yep. through a PPP that are. Um, it's about maintaining a, a existing roads and some greenfield development and renewal as well. But nevertheless, in large geographic areas that make it at scale. So to, again, just to get my soapbox out, I think that. If it's needed, that's where governments need to focus their attention on the use of private capital is to get it involved in being able to quickly deploy mm. smaller scale things in every community rather than trying to accelerate a major metro by six months. So, yeah, is that something that's... I'd-
2: is, is that something that's coming out of the you know Macquarie Capital origination team of, of packaging up those smaller smaller projects? We're coming up with lots of ideas all, <laughs> all over the place. We'll, <laughs> we'll we'll put that one on the list. But
1: the I think the idea of what you're talking about there, Adrian, around that um, uh, the smaller scale portfolio type of thing, I think there's an opportunity for for government around that because actually the job of government there is to provide the right framework and. Mm program around it if someone says well uh, there's a lot of effort that goes into documenting or structuring these sorts of projects even just from the government side if you're doing it for one small project actually if you do it for a big portfolio of little projects you can do that work once have the investment going over those over a period of time over a um over a program fantastic there's an efficiency in and of itself so that's to be encouraged I would think, and each of those things could be quite small. It could be units of 10 social houses. Yeah. But then there's a program of building hundreds of those over the course of a, a multi-year program around the city. It's maintenance of council and you know, sub-arterial roads in a particular area that expands. So there's lots of ways to think about School when you're that. Schools, area. yeah, exactly.
2: So. I want to ask a slightly different question. Uh, there's, there's a period we... Went through and have since emerged from where the leader of New South Wales, Australia and New Zealand were all at the same time former investment bankers. Uh, what do you guys know that we don't? And <laughs> uh, is that is that the next step after uh, after Macquarie? Yeah, when <laughs> you run? Are you heading for a, our whole organisation, or are you talking about just me? just you for you? Oh, right. Are you heading across the road to
1: fifty two MP after that? No, not for not for me. not for me. I'm quite happy where I am for the moment. <laughs> so no, lot, lots of things we can do. I can do it Macquarie. So that's the, that's that's the focus for me. Um, but I don't I don't know. I don't know in the answer because I don't know how it's how it turned out that all of those people who'd operated in the finance sector ended up in in politics at the same time leading those organisations. I think one of the things that you'd observe around um, the work that we do certainly is a lot of it is project-based and a lot of it is um, trying to make things happen or facilitating others who want something to happen, we're helping them do that. So there's a nature of delivering projects that Possibly um, flows out into the community, or service, or uh, or politics, because
2: uh, people like getting things done. So m- maybe
1: that's the connection. I don't. I don't know.
2: Look, it genuinely is an interesting development. At the, look, that was probably coincidence at the time, mm. but um, certainly the your the depth of your understanding in infrastructure in general. I don't think. And your colleagues as well in investment banking, I don't think is necessarily replicated um, through through for other executives who might have come up through a marketing channel or who might have come up through a, a different kind of area. And may, look, maybe that's it. I, I, I don't know. Do the reflection
0: I'd make in, in particularly in New South Wales, it and probably New Zealand as well, it made a very dramatic difference to the way government operates. Absolutely. Like having an investment banker driving that in New South Wales did genuinely drive um, the balance sheet renewal that occurred in New South Wales the recycling of assets in um, in New, New Zealand a well. comprehensive balance sheet approach that was deployed that the, the way government operated seemingly having that kind of f- framing of the way an investment banker thinks about the world appears to have had a pretty dramatic impact on those. Governments and economies.
1: Mm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the project-based nature of things. Maybe it's the financial need of what the government needed at the time, whether it's balance sheet repair or you know capital to be deployed. So maybe mm. those skills are relevant at, at that particular point in time in the in the cycle. Hard to know. It could be an accident, just an accident of history that you end up with people with a finance background <laughs> yeah. in uh, in those roles. So
0: um, I, I'm going to ask a slightly roundabout question: the um, huge amount of money. That is ready to be deployed into infrastructure, um, and in, in viewed many ways, infrastructure is actually pretty a in nascent um, investment class. Yeah, um, yeah. So still yeah.
1: categorized as emerging or alternative in yeah. many uh, many uh, investors' minds.
0: And, a, and um, you, a lot of the superannuation funds say well, we're underweight on infrastructure. They mm. want more. Yeah. Um, where does that money go if it doesn't go to? infrastructure and um what do we the infrastructure sector need to do to make sure it doesn't go to those other Mm. uses so i
1: mean if it's if it's their pot of capital for stable long-term cash flows it typically goes
2: into loans or bonds or something of a long-term long-term type nature sorry do you you view those as interchangeable in terms of the risk profile for, for for a fund uh, no, they're different, but in the absence of the ability to invest
1: in infrastructure, then it's unlikely to go into a volatile, high-risk right. yeah. uh, investment. So if it's not there, it's going to sit in cash okay. until, it get, until it gets deployed. And a lot of it is sitting in cash or commitments are, are sitting in cash, those who'd like to get deployed into the infrastructure space. Um, it'll go into real estate. You know, that's another asset class long-term. So there's a there's places that it'll go if it really wants to get into, into infrastructure. Uh, we're starting to see more and more people who are long-term term debt investors or lenders saying, actually, oh, equity in an infrastructure asset, long-term contracted cash flows, I'm getting a superior return. There's more risk that I'm taking for that because I'm not a secured lender, I'm, I'm equity. But uh, in a low return environment, we're starting to see a little bit of flow that way, actually, as mm. opposed to So that, again, is increasing demand. What do we do to increase the opportunity set from an infrastructure? point of view well that's the that's the challenge isn't it so I mean, we see that as part of our job in terms of trying to create assets and create opportunities for
2: uh that capital to to invest and that's what you pay adrian for as well to yeah well get, <laughs> so, so it's get worth it <laughs> so
0: um one of your other jobs is that you're um you're on my board you're am, a deputy yes. chair of infrastructure yep. partnerships australia so you're my Boss,
1: you know way. Yes. Um, You've been behaving very well. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, do we want to do my review now? Um, so, I mean, that's, I guess it's a it's a leading question to the kinds of things yeah, that, yeah. Um, yeah, you and other members of IPA tries to drive through your membership. Of IPA is actually getting um, policymakers to stay focused on those longer term reform.
1: Uh, it, it is, and I think so. That is part of the answer to your question around making sure that we've got projects happening, assets being created, investment opportunities happening. Part of the answer to your question is where there is a community need or a community demand or an efficiency to come, that's the job of the participants in industry and as represented by an industry body in IPA to look to help to facilitate the policy, the frameworks, the decisions that'll mean that those projects happen. So all of that adds up to the work that IPA does. And as members of IPA, as Macquarie as a member and a and a you know founding uh, partner, I guess of of IPA. And we've been we've been members from, since the start of the start of the journey. <coughs> um, that's what we look for from 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 IPA as a as an industry um, spokesbody, policy developer facilitator of discussions and the nice thing about IPA I think is that you've got this great combination of private participants, builders, investors, service providers, government, not politicians just but the bureaucracies, the treasuries and so forth Mm -hmm. and you've got this uh, melting pot and discussion mix and ability for all those people to come together and talk sensibly about things. If you're going to be able to talk sensibly about things you can progress the agenda, you can progress ideas and I think that's the great power of IPA relative to other industry bodies that only tend to represent one of those different groups of stakeholders. So I look
2: for t- podcast hosting opportunities from, from our membership of it. <laughs> <The IPA>. <laughs> <laughs> Just, <laughs> uh, it's worked out it? each, <laughs> gets the, each to their own, you know. <laughs> it's a diverse group of members. That's to right. That's uh, right. <laughs> That's our, <good. laughs>
1: um,
0: one of the things we didn't discuss on the your um, co-head position with Macquarie Capital is there's a number of different business line. So this is there going is. to be a difficult question for you mm-hmm. uh, because there are some people that will be offended by your answer right. to this question, which is, uh, what's your favorite type of infrastructure and why?
1: Ah, see, that's easy. See, tunnels. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I might In have all their but... forms, like um, sewage, tunnels. 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 Yep. To underground tunneling. That's it. That's my favorite form of infrastructure. Uh, okay. Maybe it's because I know more about it than the other bits. But uh, I like the complexity of it, the the challenge of building underground. You think back to the heritage of the early tunnelers who were trying to tunnel in London. You think of your Brunel back in the day who invented the tunnelling shield, so a shield to stop the mud falling into the guys who are actually digging by hand the first tunnels under the. But so these tunnels the tent, it's tunnels under construction. That? that tunnels under not- construction, but. The beauty of a tunnel that has been constructed. You like an operating tunnel. I do like an operating tunnel. I do like to go visiting tunnels that are under construction, though. There's a slight favourite to the construction (laughs) side of things. (laughs) So that's right. Yeah. Uh, Well, um, that's a good note to finish (laughs) on. So uh,
0: thank you very much, John. Thanks Thanks for having me. um, Thanks to uh, you both. Thanks Thanks for coming. Pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a rating or a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any suggestions for guests, then please feel free to send those to either Ilya or myself. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierchen, Brendan Pearce and Michael Player.